Well, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Father in heaven, we do seek for you to do this very thing, to deliver us from the power of the evil one, to lead us away from temptation, to use your word to sanctify us and shape us to be like your son. Lord, open our eyes to see what we find here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's something new here. Well, we're continuing our um, kind of topical study of prayer as we spend these 30 days uh, praying for our city. Um, This morning, to do that, we're going to look at a passage from Matthew chapter 18, uh, the first four verses that we find there. So I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. From Matthew chapter 18, if you have your Bibles. You turn there and follow along with me. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Please have a seat. I mean, so far in our series on prayer and fasting, we've seen that we pray because, one, prayer works. We've seen that we pray because God is an ultimate end, that time with God is itself meant to be a great reward. But how do we get there? I mean, how do we actually pray? What do we actually say when we pray? As I think that we often tend to approach prayer in the opposite way that we perhaps ought to. We, we tend to think too much. We tend to, we tend to make it something that's hard, something that we have to carefully craft, something that's a little bit intimidating to come up with, and so we don't do it perhaps as much because we think of prayer as a lot of work. I mean, and it's understandable why we would do that to some degree, why it would be intimidable, intimidating. What's the word? Intimidating. Thank you. One of those moments, one of those days. I mean, if we think about who we're praying to, that can be an overwhelming thing. We're praying to the the God who created the universe. I mean, he calls everything into being. He is the one from whom all life emanates. I mean, it's it's an intimidating person to think if you're going into the presence of someone of such majesty, if someone this much magnitude about them, of course we would be very worried and anxious about what are we possibly going to say. And it's not as though that wasn't reinforced in the Old Testament, especially when you see God instructing Moses to bring the people out of Egypt, and he did it in such a grand way that they learned something about this God, that he is one of might and power and majesty and strength and can overcome all of the other powerful gods that existed in the, in the uh, understanding of the Egyptians. And not only does he bring them out, he brings them to this place where Moses had instructed them, Mount Sinai. And what do they find when they get there? They find a mountain that is on fire on the top. 
that it's covered with smoke is coming down. They, they hear the roar of thunder to the point where it's, it's terrifying. And even Moses himself comes out and say, do not touch the mountain lest you die. So it is an intimidating thought to think, hmm, we're instructed to pray to come before the presence of this consuming fire who is introduced to us as this fire on the mountain filled with smoke. We hear the, his voice, which sounds like thunder, and we're told to not get too close lest we die. Of course, we ought to feel a bit intimidated to come into the presence of a God like this. We should feel a bit of reluctance on one hand. And there's other aspects of, of, of even the way we practice prayer that makes it hard for us to think about coming before God, or at least a lot of work, an intimidating thing. When we hear corporate prayer, prayers prayed before us that we admire, and when we hear someone pray in a corporate setting like a worship service, and they pray in such a way that just sounds so beautiful and really goes through things, well, that's intimidating. So we think, do I have to sound like that when I come before the Lord? I mean, a good example would be the Puritan prayers. You know, if we think about, um, there's, a, there's a book I have called The Valley of Vision, which is just a, a filled with Puritan prayers. And I will sometimes go to that book and pull out some of those prayers when I do put corporate prayers in the bulletin because they're beautiful. So, for example, here's one. You know, O God of the highest heaven, occupy the throne of my heart. Take full possession and reign supreme. Lay low every rebel lust. Let no vile passion resist thy holy war. Manifest thy mighty power and make me thine forever. Thou art worthy to be praised with every breath, loved with every faculty of soul, served with my every act of life. Thou hast loved me, espoused me, received me, purchased, washed, favored, clothed, adorned me when I was worthless, vile, soiled, polluted. I was dead in iniquities, having no eyes to see thee, no ears to hear thee, no taste to relish thy joys, no intelligence to know thee. But thy spirit has quickened me, has brought me into a new world as a new creature, has given me spiritual perception, has opened to me thy word as light, guide, solace, joy. Thy presence is to me a treasure of unending peace. No provocation can part from thy sympathy. For thou hast drawn me with cords of love and dost forgive me daily, hourly. Oh, help me then to walk worthy of thy love, of my hopes and my vocation. Keep me, for I cannot keep myself. Protect me that no evil befall me. Let me lay aside every sin admired of many. Help me to walk by thy side, lean on thy arm, hold converse with thee, that henceforth I may be salt of the earth and a blessing to all. Now that's a beautiful prayer. But if I had to think that that's what I had to come up with in order to come before God, I would probably never do it. So there is a danger in here that... And, and, I don't want you to stop reading prayers like that. They're very helpful at shaping our thoughts. They're very helpful for us to meditate upon a prayer like that. And it wouldn't be a bad thing to open one of those and use it as a prayer as you go through. But the problem with this, this is not really a model prayer. Because, interesting, hear me, this prayer isn't so much meant to be heard by God, but it is meant to be heard by other people. Because it's teaching us. It's training and shaping the way we think. It's a doctrinally, beautifully, and full prayer. But God doesn't need to hear all that stuff. That's what we need to begin to understand and meditate upon. So prayer 
can be a confusing thing, it can be an intimidating thing. It is something that works, and it is meant to be a great reward in and of itself as we come into the presence of God. But we are confused people, often looking at prayer as something that is a great deal of work, perhaps a bit intimidating, and so we just don't find ourselves doing it regularly. So how do we break through that? How do we break through? And I think the answer, the answer is this text that we read gives us a great clue. What does he say? He says, Matthew 18, verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I could put it like this, unless you turn to become like children, you will never pray. Think of it like that. Unless you become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does he mean by that? And that's kind of what I want to expound a little bit. What does he mean by that? I mean, it's certainly not the only place he tells his disciples to be to act like children, or it elevates the significance of children. We find it also in Mark uh, uh, chapter 10, Mark chapter 9, we find it in Luke chapter 10. So it's, it's a, an ongoing theme, the significance of these children, who are often presented up against those who would otherwise find themselves you know, prideful or seeking to be the greatest. And here instead he holds up, no, I just want you to be like children, or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does he mean by that? Well, I want to make some observations. And the good news is, these are really easy observations to make. So I don't think this is complicated at all. In the first sense, I mean, especially if you're, if you're a parent. If you're a parent who's had young children, and by the way, when I think he's talking about being like a children, he's, I want you to envision in your mind little children, like young children. Not the teenagers, they've learned too much bad stuff. <laughs> little children. And one of the first things you notice is that a child has no pretense. And that's the first thing. Children come without pretense to their parents. Which I would say that we, as God's children, need to learn how to come before God without any pretense. Without any pretense. I mean, what does that mean? Well, it means you see exactly who they are when they come to you. They have no filter, right? You know what they're thinking because it blurts out. I mean, how many of you had your kids in a public place and they see something unusual and so they commented about it and it just embarrasses the heck out of you, right? Making an observation that you're, you know, you're not supposed to say that in public. You're not supposed to notice those things about the way that person looked or the why that this person did that that we don't approve of at our house or something like that. And all of a sudden, these people look up, they're staring at you, right? You know, children have no pretense. You know if they're happy, you know when they're sad. You see them at their absolute worst. You see them at their absolute best. They present it all before you. And that's exactly, I think, how we are instructed to go before the Lord. There is no part of you that you are meant to hide from God, in other words. You're supposed to let Him see all the things that go through your thoughts and your mind. We have to learn how to do that. Otherwise, otherwise, what ends up happening is we end up approaching God like we end up approaching social media. 
We're putting on our Instagram self before God. Have you noticed that? You want to go before the Lord in prayer, and you think, I have to pray a certain way, and there's certain things I can say, and really what you're doing is you're presenting your spiritual Instagram self to God. And there is even a sense in which you're, you're doing that unconsciously because you yourself don't want certain things to be true about you, so you don't bring them up. Because as long as you don't bring them up, you don't have to acknowledge they're actually a reflection of you. So it actually encourages you to be this phony person, this hypocrite before the Lord without intending to be. So it's to be coming to the Lord without pretense, just exactly who you are. Now, if, let's just for a minute assume that you were able to do what the Puritan prayer did. By the way, that Puritan, I'm sure that prayer did not just pop out of his mouth. I'm sure he had taken a lot of time to carefully craft that and work it through. And how many iterations did he have? Oh, I don't want to do that line. I'm going to change it to this one and that one. But let's just assume for a moment you were able to actually craft prayers like that on a routine basis and go before the Lord. The one thing that you don't find there is anything specific. The one thing you don't find there are things um, that are going on deep down that you're wrestling with on the regular part of life. And those things will never get brought before the Lord. They just stay buried. And you don't even, it doesn't even occur to you to bring those before the Lord. But if you go to the Lord without pretense, there's nothing about the items that occupy your mind that aren't able to make their way out in prayer. And even as I read this prayer, what did your mind do? Did, there, did you listen to every line that I said? Or did you listen for a while and then your mind just drifted? And what did it drift to? Maybe it drifted to, you know, oh, there's some things I haven't done at home yet that I've got to get done, or work is pressing, or I'm feeling really anxious lately about this certain thing, or, uh, you know, I've got to mow the, the grass, or, you know, I've got to go to the grocery store on the way home. It drifted to things that ordinarily and normally occupy your mind because they're related to life. And if all you ever prayed was these Puritan-type prayers, all those little routine things would never become part of your prayer. And by the way, that's where your mind is actually spending itself. So if you are to go to the Lord without pretense, even those thoughts, those thoughts that your mind drifted to are the, the thoughts that get brought before the Lord. Now, why is that important? Why is that important? Well, because all of those things, we need the Lord to shape us. And if all of a sudden you bring him into the presence of God, there is this implicit expectation that you're going to shape me with regard to that thinking. So, the first thing is to come without pretense. This is how you pray. Let whatever those anxieties that are occupying your thoughts, whatever those undone tasks that are occupying your thoughts... Whatever those frustrations are, whatever those pains are, those hurts are that occupy your mind, that's what you bring before God. You don't hold it back. You don't put a filter on your prayer. Because it is interesting, if you're willing to bring those things before God, you do realize He has something to say about it. It's hard to hold on to, to those anxious thoughts or those things if you bring them before the Lord, because all of a sudden, there is this instant sense of him shaping them. You're, you're suddenly aware that he's looking at that, and it changes even the way that you think about that anxiety.
or that fear or that whatever it is. That even if it's that task, why am I doing this task? Would I do this task if the Lord was, was knowing I was doing this task? Would I do it the same way if I knew he was aware that I was doing this task? Which, by the way, he is aware. Prayer is your just way of bringing it, oh, yeah, I'm recognizing that. Yes, he is aware. So the second thing, second aspect of praying, how do we pray? Well, we pray without pretense. Other thing children do is they come without fear. They come without fear before their parents. Have you noticed that? Now, I'm not saying that all children come to their parents without fear. I mean, we learn how to fear, don't we? as we go through life. I mean, as you get older as a kid, you are learning that, it is, that, that there are things that will hurt you in this world, that there are people that will hurt you in this world, and so you, you learn what to say and what not to say, right? If people make fun of you for saying a certain thing, or, or this idea that you have in your mind is not really acceptable in this group, well, then you've learned to, to hold that back. You don't speak those things. So life teaches us to be afraid and to be very careful about what we say. And even children can learn this. I mean, as they grow, as they grow into teenagers, they are learning that they're perhaps saying some things to you might upset you. And so they don't want to bring those things up. They start to hide pieces of their life that they're afraid you won't approve of. Because they want you, by the way, to love them after all. But the, but, the, but the little child hasn't learned to do that yet. And by the way, this is not saying that sometimes they rightly learn how to be afraid. Some people don't have great experiences in their childhood. They had abusive parents, mothers or fathers, and so they do quickly learn to be afraid. But when they're really, really little, and they haven't learned that yet, that's who Jesus is saying, be like. Be like that before the Lord. Don't be afraid to bring anything before the Lord or to go before Him with anything. Someone once expressed how when you think about praying before God, you know, He's the kind of father that when you're young enough, you can go wake him up at 2 a.m. and say, Daddy, I just need a drink of water or I just need a hug. I'm feeling scared. And, of course, that'll... If your child is small enough as a dad, you're going to welcome that. Now, maybe if he's a teenager, maybe not. <laughs> but if he's young enough, right? If he has that boldness to come before you, what are you going to do? You're going to get him that drink of water. You're going to hold him if he needs, you know, a hug, if, he need, if he's frightened. Children know this instinctively when they haven't yet learned to be afraid. They're not afraid to just let you see exactly who they are. They learn that. So in essence, what we're learning is that we're, it's, the words that we pray are less important than the heart and mind that we reveal and present before the Lord. And I'm not saying... I want you to be careful and shape your heart and mind before you come to the Lord. That's missing the whole entire point. The whole entire point is to let the Lord see your actual heart and your actual mind. Don't be afraid to let Him see those things. Now, of course, 
When we think about the prayers that are applauded in the Bible, I mean, it is interesting. We have lots of model prayers. You can go read, uh, I mean, the Psalms are, of course, that's a, a, a book of prayers. Uh, you can go read prayers that are written out by the apostles, you know, in each of their le- letters, and they're, they're wonderful prayers. They're filled with doctrine. They're, they're great prayers. But some of the applauded prayers in the Gospels are the ones that, what, of the, of the sinner rather than the Pharisee. Think of that. The Pharisee comes boasting of how he's obeyed. The sinner comes beating his chest and just says, have mercy. The prayer that Nathan pointed us to, the father who's struggling, I believe, help my unbelief. You've just presented a, an, a contradiction within that own prayer before the Lord. I believe, yet help my unbelief. But these are the prayers that we look at and say, they're not complicated, they're not filled with doctrine, but they are certainly revealing the actual self, not the Instagram self, of the individual who's praying before the Lord. They don't have any pretense, and they don't have any fear. They just bring them. Because you know what? If you don't know what to say, Paul talks about how in Romans the Holy Spirit does, Your groans themselves can be enough of an expression of what your heart and mind are up to at the moment. The next aspect, children come with great expectations, little children. You don't have a child come to you and ask you something if he doesn't expect you to give him an answer. He would think that would be completely pointless. And he would be completely befuddled if you didn't give him an answer. It just wouldn't resonate at all. In fact, it wouldn't resonate to the point that he'd just keep asking. Or she, right? I mean, how many of your parents have had that? You just don't answer, don't answer, don't answer, and they just don't stop. And finally, okay, let's go get you a glass of milk, you know, or whatever it is. I'll do it. So why, what, what, is, what do we learn about children? With the, they're coming with great expectations because they implicitly trust their parents. They implicitly trust them. I mean, you have to have that if you're going to have expectations. They trust Him with their secrets. They trust Him with their weaknesses. They trust Him to be gentle and yet shape where they need to be shaped. I mean, a child doesn't always, by the way, expect you to answer yes. I mean, that's his hope, of course. But he does expect when, he, when you answer that somehow you're either going to give him what he wants or you're going to do something for you that you needed. Now, that's not always, not always welcomed or embraced by children, but they implicitly get that. They understand that. That's why they keep coming. It, didn't, it doesn't scare them off from coming the next time. Even though you don't give them the answer they expect. Because sometimes... We don't get the answers we expect when we go before the Lord. But if we're confident enough to know that that prayer did not fall on deaf ears, He may give us what we're asking for, or He may give us what we need. But the idea is that we come with expecting Him to shape us in some way, shape, or form, either with the yes that we expect or the no that is, going to, that is more what we need. And children come that way. They come before their parents without pretense, without fear, and with great expectation because they fully and completely and implicitly trust their parents to care for them. 
And so it's not complicated, you know, this idea of prayer. Now, why are all those things something that the child can do? Because he has absolute confidence that his father or his mother loves him, right? He has absolute confidence that he will be embraced no matter what he shows, what he asks, what he brings, what he says to that parent. And that is the picture of the father that we have in the Bible. We have a picture of a father who embraces his children, who embraces his children. I mean, think about these words from 1 John that he writes to the church. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And by the way, I think this is the difference. When you look at the Israelites in the Old Testament, and there is a difference, by the way, in the Old Testament and New Testament for a reason. It's not that God has changed, but, but other things have changed. When they approached God in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, the Israelites, and they found him this consuming fire on the top of the mountain, he was there to dwell with them. But the problem was, he is a holy God, and they are not a holy people. He is setting them apart from all the other people in the world, so there is, there is that sense in which they are holy, but they're not holy in the same way that God is holy. So there is a very careful demarcation between where God is dwelling and where the people are. So even as he's dwelling in their midst, Moses receives these instructions to build a tabernacle in a very careful way so that when God is dwelling in their camp, they are separated by him by particular things. They're separated by him with the need to come before him with a sacrifice. They're separated by, by this veil that exists between the Holy of Holies and the, the rest of the temple and where the people reside. So there's always these very careful barriers between them and God to protect them from his consuming fire presence. I mean, he still loved them in the same way. But what's changed in the New Testament? In the New Testament, that veil that existed between the holy and holies we read about when Jesus is on the cross, it's torn from top to bottom. Those things that were temporarily put in place in the Old Testament to protect the people from the consuming nature of God have now been removed. And what does that tell us? Why is that the case? Because Jesus has come. And he has paid the price that was, was owed for, those, for that sinful nature of not being holy. And the best way of illustrating that comes from Leviticus chapter 16. It's, it's what happens on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement in the life of Israel, they were instructed the priests to bring two goats before the Lord. And on one goat, the priests lay their hands on his head, and they confess all the sin of the people. All their iniquity, all their transgression, all their guilt is, is confessed out loud. So there's this picture of that being transferred to the guilt, or the, to the goat. 
And then there's someone instructed to take that goat and to carry it outside the camp into the wilderness. It's called the Azazel. That's what this goat is called. And the Azazel is, of course, a hard word to translate. It means where the wild, the wild things, the wilderness, the place where there isn't any life. And the picture is that literally God is removing their guilt and their sin away from them. He's taking it outside of his camp. They remain, but he's taking it outside the camp. Psalm 103 talks about how he removes your guilt and your sin as far as the east is from the west. And how far is the east is from the west, by the way? I mean, we have a circular globe. It's infinitely far. That's the whole idea. He's carrying away your guilt, your iniquity, your transgressions away from the camp where he himself dwells so that that consuming fire doesn't consume you. And in the same way, the second goat is offered up as a sacrifice to atone. In other words, to pay the actual price that was owed for that guilt. So he pays the price that's owed for the guilt in the one that's killed, and he takes away the guilt and the transgression as far as from the east as from the west who removes it from you. So that veil, when Jesus is on, utters his last cry on the cross and actually dies, the veil is torn in two. In fact, this is what it says in Matthew. And Jesus cried, this is chapter 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. She said, that was not an insignificant moment. That was a massive moment. And what it shows us is that God embraces His children, no matter what it costs to do that. He's paying it. And that's what He did. That's what He did. We are no longer kept at arm's length. We are no longer kept at bay. We are no longer instructed to be very careful and don't get too close. Now we are invited to be intimate in communion with the Father. By the way, that's what the table means. So we come as children without pretense, without fear, with great expectation because the Father Himself embraces us. I think the best illustration of that is the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, you guys know that story. I mean, you know, a man has a, two sons. One son wants his inheritance early, so he goes and asks his father for the inheritance, which, by the way, in that culture was like saying, I wish you were dead, dad, because that's when the inheritance is normally distributed. The father says, okay, and he gives him his half of the inheritance. He goes off and he squanders it in a bad choices and bad living. I mean, he really squanders it in a bad way so that we find him, you know, longing to eat the pigs that he's feeding. So the only job he can find is feeding pigs, and he's so hungry, he wants to eat the things that only pigs eat, which I don't think the human stomach can even digest. That's why he's not eating them. So he has this idea, I know what I'll do. My father has plenty of money. I know I've already ruined my chances with him, but maybe, just maybe, he'll take me on. He'll hire me as a servant. So this is his plan in his head. And so he's making his way back. He's rehearsing what he's going to say. His father sees him from a long way away. 
And what does his father do? He doesn't stiff arm him. He doesn't say, ah, the prodigal son has returned. Let's see what we can get out of this guy. He runs. Commentators describe that as this gauntlet. Because the whole village would have would known what this child did and would have been eager to make him pay, in essence. But the father, instead of making the son walk through with all the judgmental eyes looking upon him from the, from the city, he runs that gauntlet. He runs through all those with all those eyes watching in a way that has to lift up you know, his, his garments and embarrass himself in front of everybody to do it. And he gets to his son, and it says he falls all over his neck kissing him. That's the embrace of the father. But he doesn't stop there. His son tries to talk. He tries to go through his rehearsed speech, but he won't let him. Instead, he says, bring my robe and put it on him. Get some sandals and put them on his feet. Get my ring, my family signet ring that bears my authority and put it on his finger and go kill the fatted calf for my son who was lost has been found. I mean, that's the embrace of the father. Now, can you imagine, of course, the older son, he still feels he's, he's not very happy about this. Can you imagine the difference in the conversations that are going to occur in the future between this prodigal son and his father and this older son and his father, they're going to look very different. What has this prodigal son learned about his father? He's already done all the worst that he can do. I mean, he wished his father dead. He squandered all that he had blessed him with in lifestyle that he knew his father would disapprove of. He no longer has any fear of his coming before his father. He's felt the embrace of his father. Do you think he's going to have to have pretense or anxiety when he comes into his father's presence? Not anymore. Not anymore. So what do you have to do when you pray? I mean, one, you know, prayer works, right? We've learned that. And prayer is bringing us into the presence of the Father. It is a reward in and of itself. Why? Because this is the nature of God. He is a father who embraces his children. So we come like a child, without pretense, not putting on the Instagram spiritual self before God, with no fear of being rejected, and with great expectation that his answer is always yes. Maybe not the way we think it's yes, but it's always yes. Because the father embraces his children. So I want to encourage you to pray. You don't have to worry about what you're going to say. You say whatever's going through your mind, just like the child. You bring it before the Lord. Nothing off limits. In fact, you should bring it all. That's how we pray. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for this instruction. It really is remarkable that you tell us to come like children. Perhaps even more remarkable that if we don't become like children, that we won't even be able to enter the kingdom of God. If we don't learn that you are a father who embraces your children, if we don't learn that you are one to whom we can show every dark corner of our heart to, if we don't learn those things, then we will never trust you, and therefore we won't have access to your kingdom. 
So, Lord, help us to trust you implicitly, to pray with great expectation, revealing our whole heart before you. In Jesus' name, amen.